Pleasure, small pleasures, who would deny us these? A gin toddy's large measures, no skimping if you please. I rough it, I love it, life is a game of chance. I'll never tire of it, leading this merry dance. If you don't mind having to go without things, it's a fine life. Fine and though it ain't all jolly old pleasure outings, it's a fine life. Fine and when you've got someone to love, you forget your cares and strife. And let the prudes look down on us, let the wide world frown on us, it's a fine, fine life. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, September 9th, 2018. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, last week, we had warned you that you are busy on September 18th uh, at, because you will be seeing the best songs cut from the best musicals sung by the best singers who never sang them at 54 Below. And if you have not gotten your tickets, it's very likely you are not going. Right, Peter? <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I will say that we are looking forward to it. And um, we're very glad that we just got a song from Smile, not the Smile that wound up on Broadway, but before Howard Ashman teamed up with Marvin Hamlish, uh, he was writing with Carolyn Lee, and uh, they wrote an entire score. And yet, um, I don't know what happened, but uh, that score was thrown out except for the title song, Smile. It's really amazing that Marvin Hamlin actually, Hamlish actually wrote two complete scores to Smile. And um, unfortunately, it didn't work out, even though I thought the show was terrific when I saw it. Um, a few critics agreed, and unfortunately, that was the end of that. But this um, other, uh, as you would expect with Carolyn Lee, has terrific lyrics, and it's a bouncy song, too, that Abigail Shapiro, who I thought was terrific in a musical about the Statue of Liberty uh, some years ago, she's going to be singing it. So we just got uh, that, and we're very happy about it. So that's the type of thing we're going to be doing uh, at 7 o'clock at 9.30 at uh, Feinstein's 54 Below. So um, I'd love to see people there and meet them and shake hands afterwards with uh, all the nice people who have been writing me over the years or have been answering the trivia questions over the years. So it'd be nice to put faces to all these names, especially Brigadude. Brigadude, <laughs> who are you? Come on, show up, Brigadude. <laughs> he, only shows, he only shows up once every hundred years. Yeah, right, exactly. Good for you. Brigadude, I think, is Hal Prince, right? So. Maybe it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. In our review section, Peter, you got over to Theater Row where you saw Heartbreak House, the Bernard Shaw play. So uh, tell us about this. Well, I'm really proud of David Stoller, who's really made a name for himself by directing uh, readings of George Bernard Shaw's play, and there are plenty to choose from. Uh, he did something like 60 plays. And um, I don't know if um, David Stoller has actually done readings of 
all of them, but if not, he's come uh, very close. And usually what's happened is um, he's done them on Monday nights at the Players Club. That's how we started out about a dozen years ago. And uh, that worked out very well. And he was able to get some really fine, top-notch people there. Uh, Marion Seldes, Fritz Weaver, George S. Irving, Michelle Park. Um, I mean, they all won Tonys, and yet they would show up and they would read these uh, Shaw plays for a night. Okay, well, getting people to spend a night um, is one thing, but to get people to really commit to a run is another, especially when we're not talking about readings, we're talking about productions. And about six years ago, he started doing productions and he started doing them with other companies like the Irish Rep and, and Tact and like that. And they were co-productions. So um, he was moving up in the world, um, which was really great. But now he's on his own and the Gingold theatrical group and Gingold is indeed named for Hermione Gingold, who was a buddy of his um, when uh, she was alive. And um, so now they're on Theatre Row, and they're doing full productions. And look at this cast. I mean, we have Allison Frazier, Tom Ewart, Jeff Hiller, Derek Smith, Raphael Nash-Thompson, Lenny Wolpe, and Karen Ziember, who's won a Tony as well. I mean, really, this is terrific to get these people to commit to a run and then learn their lines. So uh, right away, I'm tremendously impressed that this has happened, that he's really taken the sleep and has done so uh, spectacularly well by it. He's also uh, put a new concept to this play. Now, this play was originally written in 1920, and it was set in 1914. And the whole point of the play is um, that people are fiddling while Britain is about to burn from uh, World War One, We always think of the Blitz in World War Two and how uh, difficult that was. But Sussex in England, which is where this play takes place, uh, was uh, very much uh, impacted by uh, World War One by the Germans. So what happens here um, is that, uh, well... <laughs> Heartbreak House really demands a lovely set. Um, we're talking about moneyed people, so it's got to look tremendous. Well, that's expensive. So what instead he has done, and I am quoting from the playbill, first we find ourselves in the basement of the Ambassador's Theatre, London, September 1940. Then we're magically transported to Captain Shotover's villa in Sussex, England, September 1914. So what's happening here is we are now in the basement of the Ambassador's Theatre, which doesn't have to look good at all. At all, it, you know, it's chock-a-block with this, that, and the other thing, a little statue of Shakespeare here, uh, a, a piano shoved in the background, that type of thing. So what's happened is that um, the actors in 1940 have told everybody to go to the basement because there may be some trouble ahead uh, with bombing, the blitz, um, the blackout, all that kind of stuff that they were doing so that Germans couldn't see what was going on. So they're coming down in the basement and they're doing this show for us down there. So that um, certainly gets them off the hook in uh, having any type of set. And um, also it points out the similarities between what happened in Britain in 1914 and what was going on during the Blitz in World War II. So um, I think it works very well. Okay, but the play is the thing after all, and we're going to talk about Heartbreak House. And uh, it's it's really something to see Karen Ziemba play Hassani Hushabai. And, you know, so many people who take on this role think, okay, I'm going to be super grand. Uh, that's what I'm going to be. And there is grandeur in Karen Ziemba's performance, but there's also the human being underneath, and it's not just played for grandness, and I think that's really quite good indeed. Now, uh, she's been married for a while to uh, Hector Hushabai, played by Tom Hewitt, who has caught the eye – 
of a young woman. Now, this is the woman I didn't mention um, <laughs> when I gave all the luminaries before because she's not as famous. Her name is Kimberly Emanuel, and she is terrific playing this naive young woman, Ellie Dunn, who falls in love with um, Hector, not knowing that um, she's actually at the house where uh, she's come to talk to Hesione about this new love, and it turns out to be <laughs> Hesione's husband. So uh, you can see there's complication there. By the way, she's supposed to be married to a guy named Boss Mangan, and that's played by Derek Smith. He's got this wonderful snub nose that would make him very welcome in a 1940s Warner Brothers uh, movie with Edgar G. Robinson, a Humphrey Bogart. Um, so, uh, and he's a, a nouveau riche guy, and uh, or is he? Uh, that's something that will be discussed later on. So, uh, Captain Shadow was played by Raphael Dash Thompson, and he is the part of Familius. He's he's lost a step. He's getting older now. I'm talking about the character now. You understand? He's getting older now. But, you know, he still has uh, a few things to say, and they're all very smart things, uh, the wisdom of age. And um, so he's he's world-weary, uh, just about reaching that point about world-weary, but he's, he's not to- totally world-weary. And I think he gives a very layered performance uh, under those circumstances. Now, um, Jeff Hiller, uh, an actor who um, usually plays fey characters – uh, gets the chance to play a woman here, uh, the um, maid, the housekeeper. Uh, he also gets to play uh, Alison Frazier's um, brother-in-law and um, a burglar as well. And he does a very good job of um, doing, creating very specific reasons for each character the being and really comes across very differently in each way even in the scene where he has to talk um in a scene where he appears both as uh two characters and he has to change his hat that type of thing that you've uh, certainly seen before i know um allison fraser is hilarious as a lady utter word uh she does more than utter a word in fact what's really completely captivating about allison fraser in this part is that she, Early on, she hilariously delivers a speech where she's going a mile a minute in a zone where there's like a 25-mile speed limit. But she just needs to talk rapidly. That's She just loves to do that. And if the other characters on stage don't understand her, well, that isn't a problem for her. As long as she has the chance to talk, as long as she has the floor, she's happy. And it's very, very funny to see her do that. So... Um, a terrific production all around. Uh, have I missed anybody? Yeah, Lenny Wolpe uh, playing um, Ellie Dunn's father, uh, who supposedly is not much of a businessman, but we'll see if that turns out to be true. So um, a wonderful cast. Um, it's a long play, of course. It's two hours and 40 minutes. But it doesn't seem it, which I'm very happy to say, and we have to credit David Stoller for that as well. And um, I I just found it quite delightful in the way that it's supposed to be delightful. For a while I was thinking, actually, is this a comedy? (laughs) No, it isn't. But but certainly it has enough comic moments in it that you're almost feeling that it's tilting in the direction of being a comedy. So you're having that much fun 
watching Heartbreak House, which doesn't seem like it's going to be a comedy from the title Heartbreak House. No, but there's a reason that title was chosen by Shaw. And um, you'll also notice, too, there are a lot of HHs in this play. Hasayani um, Hushabai, Hector Hushabai, and a few other surprises, too, where H's come in. So um, I, I think you should go to H <laughs> and uh, have a good time at Heartbreak House. So could either one of you help me with this? I'm always confused about the reference of Bernard Shaw versus George Bernard Shaw. Um, do we know the story behind this? Um, I don't. <clears throat> I don't either, except that uh, I think George Bernard Shaw was his formal name, and he preferred to be referred to just as Bernard Shaw in the same way kind of like that Harold Prince never uses Harold. Mm, uh, in his actual life. Uh, that That's what I've gleaned from it, but I could be wrong. All right. So, yeah, I see on the uh, on the artwork for Heartbreak House that it does it. It does omit the George. Uh, and it seems like uh, through various Googling that it's it was just his preference. But I wasn't sure if there was a, a larger story behind that that uh, made more sense. But so they're sort of interchangeable, I guess. And I'm pretty sure that uh, the credit in My Fair Lady is based on a play by Bernard Shaw. Mm-hmm. So. Excellent. All right. So, uh, Peter, you also got over to the National Asian American Theater Company to see Henry VI, uh, which is not very often done. So tell us about that. Well, yes, I got over there, but I got over there too late. And I'm blaming my girlfriend because she went to Paris for a week and she loves Shakespeare. And so we had to postpone it. And uh, I really want to offer an apology to the National Asian American Theater Company because it closes today and uh, it really deserved to be seen. So um, they should hold a grudge against uh, my girlfriend for going away. Um, so here we are, we a uh, mostly Asian cast, um, and that means Indian as well. And um, so I do wonder, in fact, if they chose uh, an Indian actress to play Margaret because they wanted to avoid the concept of a dragon lady that is so often unfairly um, given to any Asian woman that has any type of backbone or spine. So um, for for whatever it's worth, uh, Margaret was certainly not played as usually is played uh, by in this case. So her name is Mahira Kakar. Uh, That's why I was um, pausing there because I was looking at the playbill because there are so many actors in this company doing wonderful work and i really think stephen brown freed uh has given the directorial uh, performance of the young season i'll grant you it started in june but um, so far he's my favorite uh, director of the year um the season because uh this is a tough show to do now it, as, as is often the case this is the third time i've seen henry the sixth and the third time i have not seen three separate plays uh, uh, every opportunity I've had, they've been lumped together in um, either one evening 
tremendously cut down, but this was two evenings. And it was very exciting to see battle scenes beautifully done, beautifully, beautifully, beautifully done. Um, as is often the case with Shakespeare, uh, for better or worse, there's not much of a set. But, oh, that lighting design by Riza Behash. Um, terrific lighting, especially during the battle scenes, which are really quite wonderful. Now, I I remember in college when I read this play, and uh, I it, it was one of Shakespeare's first, some people even say it was the first, uh, saying that if they were giving out uh, Tony Awards in those days uh, or, or any such prizes, I don't know if he would have won, but he certainly would have won a prize for most promising playwright because the scene where Margaret um, mocks uh, a would-be uh, pretender to the throne um, is really a very effective scene, and it really does indicate things to come are going to be really great from this guy named Shakespeare, that this is, um, I don't want to say a minor league Lady Macbeth, because indeed she has <laughs> the same type of personality as Lady Macbeth. She just doesn't get as much stage time. But uh, she does have a confrontation scene uh, that, that is very, very remarkable. And what's also remarkable, because this was in two parts, is you actually saw her grow from this person who was chosen to be queen and uh, was very meek and mild. But boy, once she gets her power, she eats everybody else for breakfast, lunch, dinner and a midnight snack. So um, so it really is very, very effective. So uh, it's a hard part, this Henry the, the Sixth, because after all, um, she wears the pants in the relationship. So um, John Norman Schneider playing the part uh, really has to make us like him while still being a little on the wimpy side. And what does happen here is he does show that he really tries to be noble. That's written in, granted, but he really wants to show that he wants to do the right thing. But when you're married to somebody who doesn't care about the right thing, uh, you often lose to that person, and that's what goes on here, too. So... Um, uh, probably about 15 in the cast and all of them really marvelous and I hope it comes back uh, and if it comes back I'm going to let you know sooner rather than later because um, it really was such a good production more to the point I was really glad to see that so many people who were at part one were also at part two because they showed they were really interested you didn't have to buy uh, tickets to both I don't think and um, the fact that they were there the very next night rare and to go and see more. And frankly, I even think the second part was, um, it certainly had no second act trouble, that famous theatrical expression. It really was a potent and accelerating evening that um, made you even appreciate what you had seen in the first part even more. So um, my apologies for not getting there sooner and uh, my admiration to all, especially Stephen Brown Freed. Wow. So the uh, National Asian American Theater Company's website has uh, some uh, short videos, uh, YouTube videos from this production. Uh, they're very interesting. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes, and we can uh, and you can review that. And let's uh, stay on top of their their next shows. They come up. They have uh, a full season coming up as well. That's listed on their website. Um, last night on Saturday evening, I got the chance to revisit Anastasia and, uh, this time took along my, my children and my family, some friends and things like that. Uh, and just wanted to say that it's holding up really well. And it's, uh, the, the cast is very strong, some replacements here and there. Uh, and, um, uh, I just wanted to let everybody know that the, uh, Anastasia I mentioned on today on Broadway is sort of been a... 
uh, under the radar hit, if you if you'll forgive the expression. Uh, it's you know not getting the press that you know Dear Evan Hansen and Wicked and uh, Springsteen on Broadway and Hamilton are with their two and three million dollar grosses, but it's consistently doing above a million dollars, uh, and the audience is loving it, and uh, it's in really good shape. So uh, don't. Uh, rule out Anastasia if you haven't seen it or if you, even if you have seen it I think it's actually I enjoyed it more this time than the last time than I when I originally saw it right after it opened on Broadway you know James I, th- I think you're 100% accurate on that and the fact that um Considering what the reviews were like, and I'm not saying they were bad reviews, yeah. but, nevertheless, but nevertheless, considering the type of reviews, the business and the interest and the staying power really has been tremendously effective and surprising in the best possible way. So you're quite right. Uh, people continue to go to Anastasia, and it's going to be there for a while uh, longer. So congratulations to all concerned. Uh, once again, proving that uh, critics don't have the power that they used to because there would have been a time when those reviews would have meant maybe six months and uh, limping along. But it hasn't limped for a second. Yeah, it's uh, really um, – I, 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 I think that the cast is feeding back – on the energy of the audience because the audience was just I don't know if there was a special audience last night or what was happening if there was a special event but the audience just they were like you know the same sort of feeling that when Bette Midler first made her appearance in Hello Dolly and the audience went insane they were doing that at Anastasia last night as well and I think it gave the cast a lot of uh, a lot of extra energy and, and like I said I think that the the show was a lot more electric uh, this time than uh, when I saw it a year ago. So yeah, it, it's doing really well, and um, we wish them all the best. That's so, because of the first time you saw it, you saw it with critics. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> this is true, and uh, you know, I might I think that I saw it the night after opening, and as you said, the 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 reviews were not bad but they weren't great so maybe they might have been exhausted and you know that sort of you know uh, the tremendous amount of energy needed to open up a broadway show um and these people are human after all you know sure. D- disney has not made animatronics to put on broadway shows yet yes. so <laughs> now cur- currently we have max von Essen in the show max correct? was out last night he was out oh, last oh. night so i didn't get oh. to see him but he is still in the role. He just yeah. wasn't there last night. Yeah, he yeah. was. Just, he it was. He was out last night. Uh, in Max's role of Gleb was Wes Hart was on last night for uh, for Max, and uh, Christy Altamira is just she is bringing so much uh, more to the role. Uh, it seemingly. Because uh, she's been doing so much promo for the show. She's got that Liz uh, Calloway and uh, duet that she's doing with with Liz. Uh, it's for it's a they're releasing a single of one of the songs as uh, as a benefit for an organization. And uh, Chrissy Altamira is really um, is continuing to dig deeper and deeper into that role of Anya. Uh, and it's really wonderful. So. In the news, uh, we heard this week that uh, Carol Shelley had passed away. And, Michael, uh, I wanted to get your remembrances of Carol. 
Well, there's so much to say. I'm sure between the three of us, we we um, we have a lot that we'd like to say. Carol Shelley was a fabulous actress who died on August 31st at 79. Uh, born in London, but much of much of her career uh, in New York on Broadway in in the states, and she won a Tony Award for her performance as Mrs. Kendall in The Elephant Man in 1979, and. Uh, is famous for that, as well as perhaps more than anything else for her role of Gwendolyn Pigeon in both the original Broadway cast, the film version, and early episodes of the television version, um, The Odd Couple, which of course was written by Neil Simon, who also recently just died. So that was a that was a real um, uh, one-two punch for fans of The Odd Couple. The, these two <clears throat> great talents gone within a few days of each other um gwendolyn gwendolyn was uh, uh first of all i mean starting with the odd couple uh the names of the pigeon sisters are gwendolyn and cecily which is a, a reference to oscar wilde's the importance of being earnest the the two characters in that also i think uh pigeon is a perfect example of how Neil Simon could uh, he was so funny that he could just pick a name like that and know that it's going to be amusing, even though it's also, you know, a, a very it's a realistic name. Um, Pigeon is the last name of, of people, aside from calling uh, to mind the birds. And I, I know there's a line uh, at one point in the original Odd Couple anyway, where Oscar refers to the Cuckoo Pigeon Sisters. And it's just a throwaway line. But it's a perfect example of uh, of how. Neil Simon knew how to use words, and uh, Carol Shelley was, uh, as well as a great dramatic actress, she was a brilliant comedian, and she could really uh, make hay with the with the character uh, of Gwendolyn as she did on stage, on film, and on TV. So that, I mean, she would have a place in history if only for that. And then um, her her unceasing work on stage. It seems like she was working constantly, um, often as a replacement. Uh, her replacement stints on Broadway include Dottie Otley in Noises Off, Parthi in Showboat, the Hal Prince production, Boo Levy in The Last Night of Ballyhoo, the Alfred Urey play, Fräulein Schneider in Cabaret, uh, the Roundabout production, and Miss Shingle in gentleman's guide and uh, for all of those musicals i was thinking um i have to double check but i think that carol's only cast album is wicked because in that show she created the role of madame morrible and I, I i suppose that's another thing i should have added as as one of the major major things she'll be remembered for by people who were lucky enough to see the original cast um i uh Oh, uh, another replacement stint for Carol was um, Grandma in Billy Elliot on Broadway. Uh, she uh, she uh, started in the role, but there was no Broadway cast album made of that show because it had already been recorded in uh, in in England. So I guess she wasn't a replacement in that sense. She she was the original on Broadway, but uh, but there is no cast album of her doing that number um and uh, i i remember in the late 90s uh i think it was around the time she was doing last night at Bally, who i was working uh for 
in theater magazine, which I, I really loved that job in that magazine. I wish it had lasted longer. And we had, um, we would do a weekly column uh, called Legend. Uh, we, we actually had two columns. One was called Legend and one was called Up and Comer, trying to focus on people starting their careers and people who uh, have been around for years and have, are very well respected. And so I uh, got in touch with Carol and, and said that we'd like to profile her for the Legend column. And she was wonderfully uh, self-deprecating. And she said, well, do you think – could we maybe put it in quotes? <laughs> and and uh, of course, I laughed and I said, "Well, I, I think you you deserve it without quotes." I, I, she just really had an amazing amazing career. Some bad luck. Uh, she was in the Elephant Man originally, as I said, and did win a Tony for it. She left the production to. Uh, go do a movie, which then wound up not happening. Uh, as soon as she found out that it was not happening, she asked to come back to The Elephant Man. But Patricia Elliott had already been hired for the role, so they couldn't do that. And then uh, a TV film of The Elephant Man, this is the Bernard Pomerantz play, was made in 1982. Um, and in that uh, version, Mrs. Kendall is played by the wonderful Penny Fuller. I'm not sure exactly uh, why it's not Carol or Patricia Elliott for that matter, but Penny Fuller is wonderful in that. But my point being that Carol did not get to uh, do a film version of that, of her performance in that role, which is really too bad. Um, and I did not see her on Broadway because I, I saw Patricia Elliott. So that's a big disappointment in my life. Uh, although Patricia Elliott was just fantastic. Um, and then of course, with the elephant man, there was that whole weird thing where there was a competing film version, <laughs> uh, that was not, uh, the script of the play. Uh, it was, executive produced by Mel Brooks, um, uncredited as it turns out. I looked it up. I, I thought it was him, and then I looked it up and I couldn't find it originally, but there he was. And so in that uh, film version, which was directed by David Lynch, Mrs. Kendall was played by Anne Bancroft, who was Mrs. Mel Brooks. So that's um, so that all of that, I, I, I'm sure, was a disappointment to Carol in uh, – you know, to a large degree, but she had such a rich career. If you just Google her or even just, just go to, um, IBDB.com. It's, it's amazing what she did. Um, and finally, I'd like to say some years ago, she, I, quite some years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer and, um, and at first she kept it quiet for obvious reasons, but then she began to be very open about it. And I remember she uh, appeared and spoke about it in one of the uh, shows for the – one of the Nothing Like a Dame shows uh, that Phyllis Newman uh, used to – used to be produced for the Phyllis Newman Women's Health Initiative of the Actors Fund. So um, I always thought it was very wonderful of her to speak about it and, and – uh, and to uh, explain that this was a challenge that she was facing. Uh, she did die of cancer. And I, I'm told by someone uh, who worked on 
gentleman's guide that she was having chemotherapy during her time in that show. Uh, so I guess I don't know, don't know if it ever went away or if it was in remission and came back or I don't know the specific details, but um, so sorry we have lost her and she will be greatly, greatly missed. And I, I did read, uh, I'm not sure if it happened yet, but there was to be a dimming of the lights for her on Broadway. Well, there was a dimming of the lights, but I'm sorry to say that it was only at a few theaters. Yes, I'd heard that. Just so bizarre. I mean, when we have seen so many people in recent years uh, have lights dimmed who have had far less of a stage career on Broadway than this, it really is terribly uh, insensitive that suddenly we should be doing piecemeal situations with um, it's it's too bizarre for me to even think that what would it take to really uh, dim all the lights for Carol Shelley, who really worked extraordinarily hard, extraordinarily hard to make certain that um, she had this stage career more than anything else. And um, so I I, I don't know why this is happening, and I hope it doesn't happen in the future, that it's only limited to this. And, Michael, you were the one last week who said instead of dimming lights, they should, you know, raise them uh, to the highest wattage they possibly can. That was you, wasn't it, saying? No, no, but that's a wonderful quote. Who said that? Michael Dale from Broadway World. Is that what it was? Okay. Michael Dale, yeah. so, I mean, really, it, it's just so uh, unbelievably strange that that isn't the case, that uh, we should celebrate these people. You know, I mean, whenever we go to any type of service, we always hear this, uh, we are here to celebrate the life of, and uh, and that's a nice way of putting it. Well, under those circumstances, we should really have uh, the lights at the, as I say, the highest wattage you possibly could. So um, <clears throat> my experience with Carol Shelley did start uh, with The Odd Couple. I'm going to repeat myself a little from last week when we talked about Neil Simon, that uh, when he was on Elliot Norton, uh, the critic for the Boston Herald, on uh, his TV show, that he gave him the idea of bringing back the Pigeon Sisters uh, and uh, how Neil Simon lit up like these marquees should be lit up when somebody of worth dies. So um, <clears throat> so it was really something to, uh, to have that happen. Because when I saw The Odd Couple, uh, it was the first night in Boston. They'd already been to Wilmington. But, um, yes, I was uh, limited to seeing them only in the first act uh, – second act, excuse me um, – of a three-act play, I should point out. So uh, my memories of Carol Shelley um, are a little uh, off-center off because, uh, first off, uh, I had invested money in the play Loot, the Joe Orton play, which lost every dime. Um, it lasted less than a month on Broadway. But Carol Shelley played Faye, an ostensible nurse uh, who was not <laughs> helping her patient at all and very much was in league with um, two thieves who wanted to, uh, to make sure that this guy was out of the way. And um, and she was deliciously uh, evil, and but funny in a way that you just fell in love with her, even though she was uh, a terrible person, uh, the nurse I'm talking about, of course. So ironically enough, this week for my Masterworks Broadway column, I was writing about Noel Coward's Sweet Potato. And um, that was a review that she did of Noel Coward's songs. And she was in it with Dorothy Loudon. And I pointed out the fact that isn't it interesting that Dorothy Loudon started Noises Off and then Carol Shelley took over for her. But I actually had to amend the column uh, because I, I had written it before Carol Shelley had passed. And then I just wanted to add into the column that uh, that had happened. So 
But um, what I'll always remember was being at work one day and um, two people called at the same time. Um, yes, Peter Felicia, uh, hold please. And I went to answer the other call. And the other call was far more uh, lengthy than I expected it to be. And I fully expected when I got back to the first call that the person would have hung up. And um, hi, this is Carol Shelley. And she had hung on for like three or four minutes. And this was all about uh, her appearing with the Theatre World Awards and what have you. And, you know, I was just so embarrassed that I had kept this luminary on hold for such a long time. Huh. And the fact that she stayed on, she was just very gracious about it. So uh, I also enjoyed her astonishingly much in the original production of The Norman Conquest, where she played Norman's wife. And being married to Norman, uh, who really marched to his own drummer, is uh, was it c- couldn't have been an easy thing. And she was so gracious, even though she knew that he, and this weekend he was planning an affair. Uh, she was just so wonderfully dignified about it. Uh, also, she was terrific in Stepping Out, a production I first saw in uh, New York and then saw in London where it was a much bigger hit. Well, it wasn't a hit at all here in, in New York. I'm sorry to say it only lasted two months. But um, the production in London, I thought, was far inferior to what Tommy Toon did. And she was really quite lovely as this uh, woman who was trying to find a life for herself, even though she was a mother and had responsibilities. So, uh, yes, um, a wonderful career, and I'm very glad that I got to see her late on in both Wicked and Billy Elliot. I did not see her when she replaced in Gentleman's Guide, but um, I'm I'm sure that considering that the character's name was Miss Shingle, that it was right up her alley. Because notice when it became a situation where we're talking about British plays coming over, mm. the Astrakhan coat, loot, hay fever, absurd person singular, Norman conquests, you know, uh, noises off, stepping out. These are all British shows, and uh, not to mention Billy Elliot, um, <clears throat> that she was the go-to woman to uh, really make it happen. Uh, they knew that um, she was born um, in England, and uh, she certainly uh, had that um, carriage about her. So it was really quite nice uh, that she was able to be the person who was dependable, that they knew getting Carol Shelley, that they would get the real thing and uh, a convincing thing. So that's uh, really quite nice. So, yes, we will miss her. And um, as I say, I'll always remember her for being gracious on that phone call. As far as the lights dimming thing, I, I wonder, I, I suspect, I mean, I think that's a wonderful idea to not dim, but to bring them up to their highest possible volume. But I wonder if uh, many of them are already set at the highest, and so that wouldn't be possible. Um, the other thing is that we, we still say dimming the lights, but in my experience, uh, what actually happens is that they actually flick off completely. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, so that's not completely accurate, but I don't know how you would phrase it otherwise. It, it just doesn't sound uh, right otherwise. It sounds wonderful to say dimming the lights. It, it just um, sounds so wonderful and respectful. In in the days of these um, very malleable marquees with uh, electronic boards mm-hmm. that can do anything, the Carol Shirley dimming the lights actually was where they put up a remembrance of her, a photograph, uh, and a little... Uh, uh, blurb about her life on the marquees, uh, and the the Broadway League released a, a statement about this. That there, uh, so let me read a little bit of it to you. It said the committee of theater owners has decided. 
And who knew that there was a committee of theater owners that decided to dim the lights of the Gershwin Theater, the Walter Kerr Theater, the Gerard Schoenfeld Theater, and the Imperial Theater of Her Memory on Wednesday, September 5th at exactly 6.45 for one minute. Each of the theaters dimming the lights in her memory was significant to Miss Shelley's career. She made her Broadway debut in the 1965 Schoenfeld Theater, formerly the Plymouth Theater in The Odd Couple, the Gershwin. She originated the role of uh, Madame Madame Marble in Wicked and appeared in Showboat in 1994. Received a Tony nomination in 2009 for her performance in the Imperial Theater of Billy Elliot, the musical, and was last seen on Broadway in 2015 at the Walter Kerr in A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. So they don't say in this... um, press release here, but I wonder if this is the way that they will address this in the future uh, by dimming the lights of only the theaters that uh, the the uh, actors have made a performance at. Um, but it's an interesting and it seems like they're trying to they're trying to address this issue of when they dim the lights and how they dim the lights and you know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we, we, we're we in a situation where we have a handful of very important people that pass away every week. And at one point, does it become uh, less impactful to dim the Broadway lights? Yes, we've discussed it before. And uh, and but to have Neil Simon and Carol Shelley within yeah. a few days, that that was that was just uh, a very sad week for Broadway. All right. Well, on the good news of Broadway this week, uh, we've had a handful of announcements that I just want to get a couple of minutes of your thoughts on. We have uh, Beetlejuice announced its plan for Broadway. So uh, another movie that's been converted to a musical that sounds like uh, it's got a great cast in it. Uh, uh, You guys have any thoughts on the Beetlejuice move to Broadway? I don't know the movie at all. Does Either of you uh, have any knowledge of this movie? You know the picture? Oh, yeah. It's a very funny kind of wacky uh, supernatural picture of um, of a family that has moved into a house and is – they have to go through – they're working in concert with – with this character, Beetlejuice, who haunts the house to um, Uh – Make it make everybody happy there. There's a I don't want to give away too much of the plot there. There's a couple who has passed away and who's stuck in limbo and they're helping them through to the other side. It's it's a very, very funny movie. It's a really odd, offbeat movie and it's got a, a great cast coming into it. So uh and it's uh it's doing an out of town tryout right now. So um I'm sure that uh that will be uh, more in the news as the out of town opens up and we get more information about it. But also we have uh, uh, Be More Chill announced a, uh, a Broadway transfer and we know a little bit more about Be More Chill because it is playing off Broadway right now and had a run out of town a few years ago at Two River Theater Company. And so Be More Chill uh, is coming in. So uh, any thoughts on uh, that transfer? It's coming into a smaller Broadway house, about a thousand seats into the Belasco. So, um, Lyceum, isn't it? Lyceum, Lyceum, not Lyceum, excuse me. uh, Belasco Mm -hmm. is the uh, getting the band back together, just is closing up, is another thing that we're going to talk about in a second. So, Belasco, yeah. So, um, be more chill. What do you think about uh, is it going to play roughly in about a house the double the size of the theater it's currently in? 
Well, uh, certainly we have to mention the uh, social media impact of uh, Be More Chill, and I think that's going to be significant. A lot of people have said, gee, is there an audience for this show? And, um, well, uh, other people have said, well, you know, the young people, um, the people who were young in 1996 certainly responded to Rent, and the counter-argument to that was, well, yeah, but look at the publicity Rent got when Jonathan Larson died, and that certainly um, helped the show tremendously. And I don't even think the Larson family would deny that. Um, this is no comment on the worth of rent, that, uh, but nevertheless, you know, the media frenzy that went around for that. And I guess today's uh, counterpart to that type of thing would be the social media. And so they do have this wonderful built-in audience. The problem is, of course, Broadway prices are substantially higher than they were in the rent days. And God bless rent for doing this um, mm. first two rows of the audience um, business that uh, really made kids uh, respond to it uh, as opposed to uh, years ago when kids used to have to spend uh, their pennies to buy the last rows of the second balcony. So so uh, I have a feeling that uh, Be More Chill is going to do very well, even though a lot of people are saying, wow, the high prices and all that. I don't know. When kids want to see a show, somehow they find the money. And so I think they're going to find the money for this one, and I think they're going to be very pleased by it. And frankly, um, even if it doesn't do well on Broadway, uh, if the producers hold on to those subsidiary rights, they're going mm-hmm. to do awfully well because this is going to be done in every high school and um, and colleges too, for that matter. So uh, this may be uh, part of the business plan saying, well, even if we don't make it on Broadway, we're going to make a, a ton when it goes out um, into high schools. But, uh, but I predict a good future for Be More Chill on Broadway. Yeah, as to that one comment Peter made, it every time a show opens on Broadway that seems like it would appeal primarily to young people, uh, I always hear, uh, but where are they going to get the money? And as you say, somehow they do. I mean, you know, I guess some of them have jobs, some of them uh, get money from their parents, you know. Um, I do think that uh, this show may end up having a similar audience to Dear Evan Hansen, uh, even though overall the tone of Be More Chill is much lighter, but there's a lot of similarity. I also think it's wise uh, that a uh, there's only one parent figure in Be More Chill, but there is one, and he has a, a fairly uh, significant role. I think that's wise in terms of helping to bring um, the somewhat uh, older audiences as well, the, uh, more of a family audience, in the way that there are the, the, the three, uh, well, I guess, three major parent roles in Dear Evan Hansen. So uh, uh, Be More Chill is based on a book, so I, I assume that all comes from there. But I think the the construction of the musical was very smart in that sense and as far as Beetlejuice um, the only thing I wanted to note was I, I did see the m- movie when it came out I don't remember it that but I noticed in the press release for the musical that in addition to the usual uh, production credits there are um, credits for projections and puppetry and then I think there's a credit for illus- illusions or something of that said so it sounds like it's going to be very very uh, impressive in terms of uh, stage magic uh, and it's and I and I think that sounds appropriate for you know for uh, this the plot uh, so I, I I I'm sure they were smart enough to tell themselves that we don't want to do this if we can't do a lot of really cool stuff on stage uh, visually and and uh, audibly uh that'll be really interesting to see what they come up with 
Uh, also in the news, we have uh, Sutton Foster is going to do uh, a one-night concert of my one and only for Roundabout Theatre Company. That uh, Are we crossing our fingers that this is a, uh, a dipping a toe in the water to get this uh, <laughs> for, a, for a longer run? You know, maybe a 10, 12-week limited run at Roundabout? Maybe. Well, uh, the the toe in the water is a very good analogy. Good for you, uh, James, because indeed uh, the original production did have a tiny little wading pool in which uh, Tommy Toon and Twiggy and um, later Sandy Duncan and Don Correa uh, did a little soft shoe dance, very soft shoe, uh, because uh, they were barefoot and they were uh, in the water. Um, My one and only was an excellent show. I will never forget, as long as I live, going to opening night here on Broadway. Now, this was a show that was terribly reviewed in Boston. Boston. And uh, the original director, Peter Sellers, was let go. And the original book writer, Tim Mayer, um, I don't know if he was quite let go. He still got credit. But uh, Peter Stone had to come in and uh, Tommy Toon took over the direction. And the thing was, that opening night, which was triumphant, the show didn't look like it was ever in trouble for four seconds. And uh, I, I would have loved to have seen it in Boston to see uh, what changes they made because, whoa, they obviously did. And they were a big hit here. And what's so fascinating about this press release is they mentioned Sutton Foster and nobody mentions who's playing the Tommy Toon part. Um, and we have to wonder who they're going to get for that role today. <laughs> uh, you know, but that's uh, I mean, Tommy Toon was top billed. Uh, I'm not saying the Sutton Foster doesn't deserve to be top billed. She certainly has a couple of Tony's to her credit and an enormous fan base but uh, it almost seemed like this was this was a show where there was just one starring part and there isn't so um, and the only thing we're sure of is that um, whoever reviews it someone will say boy do we need it now or uh, who could ask for anything more because those are statements that are often seem to be made with these uh, Gershwin musicals that come back like crazy for you so I guess it didn't happen with the Gershwin's fascinating rhythm but that's another story but Anyway, I'm sure this should be a, a real triumph. And my one and only has been sadly, sadly neglected for a show that was a big hit. Uh, I have seen very few productions mentioned in the 30 or so years that um, I guess it's 35 now, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was the same season as Cats. Um, so uh, 35 years. And there have been very few productions that aren't commensurate with the type of hit that it was. Well, two things. Uh my one and only is currently on the schedule for a production at Wagner College in the spring. Nice. I, I I don't suppose they'll pull the rights from that for a, for a one nighter. I, I hope I not. Hope but hope. Um, and then uh, as to James's other comment about uh, dipping a toe in the waters, uh, I as far as I know, at least three roundabout productions have started that way, uh, begun as one night benefits and then gone on to full productions at some point later. Uh, they did that with a little, a little night music. She loves me. And now kiss me. Kate is going to be, uh, yeah. Yeah. So oh, that's yes, starring that's, Kelly or something, right? Yeah. Kelly, uh, Kelly. Oh, what's her name? Hanlon. No, something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, normally uh, last week was uh, a quiet week as everybody – it started as a quiet week as everybody was coming back from the Labor Day holiday break and the traditional start of fall, although not the actual start of fall. Um, we got a press release that Star Mites is doing – somebody is doing a Star Mites fundraiser to bring Star Mites back to Broadway. Now, I think ah. that Peter has seen Star Mites. Michael, did you see Star Mites? Yes, 
All right. Do we think that Star Mites uh, should be coming back to Broadway or maybe do a one night only at Roundabout Theater Company first? It was at the Criterion Center, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That that's I could be wrong, but that sounds right. That that was and that was a time that was a very lean year, as you recall, uh, as far as Tony Awards. Gabriel Barry, who was uh, nominated for Star Mites, he played a lizard, um, was watching the show one night and uh, Jason Alexander was on and um, I don't know who the host was was it Johnny Carson I don't know but anyway uh, said well you've been nominated for a Tony Award do you think you're going to win <laughs> and he says well it's, uh, some, I, again I didn't see the show and it's been a long time since Gabriel told me this story but it was something like uh, Jason Alexander said well I'm up against a lizard you know so uh, <laughs> uh, indicating the competition wasn't going to be that much of course Gabriel Barry was um, a, a little aghast at hearing this uh, that this left-handed non-compliment uh, come from the TV screen <laughs> about uh, him. But anyway, uh, well, you know, this uh, don't write Star Rights off. And I'll tell you why, because um, unlike by what it only, Star Rights gets done a lot in uh, community theater and high school theater and middle school theater. This is Star Rights Jr. And um, so all these kids who did it in, in grammar school and high school may very have aged into theater goers and they may very well come out and see the show that they loved so much when they were kids. I'll tell you the one smart thing about star mites is that, um, it is about, um, a, a comic book fan who loves comic book heroes and all that. And I thought it was very smart to make it a girl, uh, as opposed to a boy, because, um, if it were a boy, uh, he would come across as much too dirty and, um, it, it, having a girl ameliorates that. So I thought it was very smart of Barry Keating to make uh, a girl fan, which is also a little off the beaten track. We usually think of the people who go to Comic-Con as uh, men, but um, I'm sure there are women who go there, too. And so that's why a woman was chosen to be um, the the heroine of uh, Star Mites. So uh, so I, I I won't be surprised if Star Mites uh, really finds an audience if it comes around um, as a one night or even an extended run. It's very interesting what you're saying about the woman hero uh, and Comic-Con tie-in. I think that that could be the the angle of success uh, at at the Comic-Cons that have have Mm -hmm. become larger than, I mean, enormously, Mm -hmm. enormously successful conferences. The women superheroes are usually the uh the top uh crowd getters uh uh-huh. they are the leaders of the this thing so that's interesting cuz from you know in my mind of thinking from a marketing and producerial standpoint that's the way that they should go to try to raise this money good point very good point so i'm glad i stumbled into that yeah <laughs> So let's uh, move forward. Um, last week we were talking, and uh, Michael uh, reminded me that we juxtaposed uh, "Carry the Banner" and "It's It's a Fine Life." Of course, "It's a Fine Life" is from Oliver, and the other one is from Newsies. So, Michael, uh, tell us about the comparison of these two these two uh, songs. Oh no, it was just my mistake. I was talking about uh, Newsies uh, in in two contexts: the uh, recent reunion concert of uh, Broadway cast members at Fifty Four Below, and then also the production I saw at the Engerman. And I was talking about uh, 
carrying the banner, but I misidentified the title as It's a Fine Life, uh, which, of course, is a song from Oliver, uh, music and lyrics by Lionel Bart, carrying the banner from Newsies, uh, music by Alan Menken and lyrics by Jack Feldman. So I just uh, wanted to apologize for that, but I thought it would be a a good excuse to listen to both of these songs. <laughs> uh, it's a fine life is a lyric or a repeated lyric and carrying the banner. And uh, I guess it would have been a good title for it, but carrying the banner is, is much more specific and a better title. So oh, I, thought- I, I have a feeling that if indeed there had been not uh, a song called it's a fine life, that would have been the title of that song. It is the more logical title of that song. Mm. Yeah. Because Interesting. Phrases repeated. I, I, I think they were just trying to avoid, uh, especially considering the fact that Oliver also deals with a, a number of young boys. So um, I, I think that's a consideration. Next time we run into um, Jack, we'll have to ask him if that's the case. <laughs> All right. So before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com, and there's a subscribe link. That, that way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google, plays, Google Play plays us. Anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get to Broadway Radio's podcasts uh also if you would be so kind as go over and leave us a review at uh at uh apple podcasts or itunes it really helps people uh um find our show and raises us in the rankings that way people will be able to find our podcast much simpler so that's one way that you can help uh, broadway radio if you could do that contact information for peter for michael and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com in the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about including all the links to Carol Shelley and the link to the National Asian American Theater Company and their, uh, and their uh, videos uh, that we can take a look at there. Um, and so, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Sure. Uh, the question was, an Oscar-winning film was made into a Tony-nominated musical, and yet one of the most, movie's most famous lines one that often shows up on the list of Hollywood's most famous film quotations, was neither used in dialogue nor lyric in the musical. What's the line? What's the film? What's the musical? And the answer was Grand Hotel, the 1932 Oscar winner, and then Mm -hmm. much later the 1989-90 Tony-nominated musicals. Uh, In the movie, Greta Garbo famously said, I want to be alone. And uh, you would think that that would show up. But I guess the feeling was, oh, it's too well known. It'll probably get a laugh. So let's not uh, use it. But uh, anyway, it is surprising when you see the movie of Grand Hotel, which I recommend seeing. And also, if you can ever see the musical, always see that. Um, You will certainly uh, enjoy yourself and um, see what I'm talking about. Chad Campbell was the first to get it, followed by Dead Popple. Brigadude, whoever you may be, come out, come out, wherever you are. Ingrid Gammerman and Doug Strassler, this time without Alyssa Marr. No, don't worry. Broadway's cutest couple hasn't broken up. Doug ah. just gets on and on his own. That's all that happens. So, all right, this week's question. What Rogers and Hammerstein song is unadulterated rock and roll? In fact, the word rock and the word roll are even used in the song. Name the show, too. All right. So if you have an answer to that, uh, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.